Well, I want to make sure we get the full story there. My words actually to Dr. Freimeyer was, what time do I need to be finished so I don't get in trouble with Dr. Freimeyer? <laughs> it's precisely what I said. So, you know, just in case you're wondering, do I need to roll down here a little bit? There we go. All right. You guys are like the, what are they called? The Sears diehard batteries of chapel. I mean, you guys just like, I mean, there's not a lot of us here on Tuesdays, but man, you guys, you guys are it, man. I'll tell you what, it's so much fun to be here on Tuesdays with this group of people, the troopers. That's it, man, you're here. Well, as is my custom, my custom when I speak in chapel, this afternoon I've got good news for you, and I've got more good news. That's right. I was like, forget that bad news stuff. We don't need any of that. I got good news, and I got good news. So which do you want first? The good news? Okay, here's the good news. This is really going to catch you. Are you sitting down? You're sitting down. Ready? Here's the good news. Christ is risen. Is that good news? Two days after Easter, I come up with the profound ones. Ready? But that truly is good news. We're going to unpack a bit of that. In fact, I'm convinced the future of the church lies with the folks who understand what it is to serve a risen Savior. You know how to tap into that. So, good news. Christ is alive. Here's the more good news. You ready? Christ is alive. Christendom is dead. Praise the Lord. What's that mean? Let me talk a bit about what I mean by Christendom and why I would say it's good news. Now, in the, there's a lot of definitions for this, and as you can imagine, like most things, academics fight over this, like how many angels can sit on the head of a Christendom pin kind of thing, you know? So people debate over the definitions of this. Let me give you kind of a good general overview of what I'm talking about, and I want to be careful with this, so I'm going to read it. Christendom is an arrangement that arose in the global West between the state, the larger culture, and Christianity, whereby the state and the culture writ large upheld the teachings, customs, and practices of Christianity. I mean, probably a bottom line if you would ask with the, within the state or states or culture, again, looked at in a large perspective, they would say, yeah, well, Christianity is a good thing. When I was a child, um, you may think, was this like when dinosaurs were running outside? I can't believe you lived this long. When I was a child, Bible was taught in public schools. Not anymore. The Bible was taught in public schools. It was kind of something everybody knew because it was regarded as something good and it's something should be supported. So we we're in the process of getting rid of it, but Christian marriage was regarded as sort of the model for what marriage should be. Or marriage was a good thing. No more. In fact, if you come out and say that kind of stuff, you can get attacked. Christians take care of the poor. Now, that's still okay as long as you don't get in the state's way. Get in the state's way of how you take care of the poor, look out. When I was a child, we had a, uh, this is back when the dinosaurs were there, remember, and they taught Bible in public schools. Uh, had a young man named Mark Hirsch in my class. Uh, they, his family, 11 children, a big farmer's family and so on. Father was an alcoholic. Uh, and the mother died of cancer. And what actually happened then was the churches in our community got together with some churches in other communities, met with the father, talked through this whole thing, and the churches enabled each of those 11 children to be legally adopted 
by families within the surrounding communities. I don't think you can pull that off anymore. I don't think you'd be allowed to. Now, a whole host of things. We can go on and go on and go on and talk about specific instances of this, but over time what happens is a, is a, a culture loses knowledge of Christianity, and that can provoke, I mean, disdain, everything from just, just get away from here to outright disdain. We saw some of this in the, in the past Easter weekend. A reporter with NPR apparently tweeted out something that betrayed a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what Easter is about. Understand there was a statement made by um, it was somebody in Hollywood with just outright rage and disdain for Christianity and people that believe Jesus was actually raised from the dead. But we live in a culture now where people have lost memory of what Christianity is and its hold upon a culture. And that lack of familiarity can lead to threats. Uh, ignorance can lead to violence, all kinds of stuff. A lot of it comes across as stereotypes. Well, you know those Christians are all, and you pick one incident, a Westboro Baptist, and then you sling that over anybody who claims the name Christian or anything that claims a church. And it's that kind of lazy intellectual thinking that then becomes accepted. To give you an idea of what it looks like to have lost memory Christianity. Uh, I worked in, in Kenya for a number of years with a couple from Ethiopia. And uh, they were Bible translators. Each the husband and wife had translated the New Testament for language in Ethiopia. And they were back in, uh, in Glasgow, uh, when Scotland, for their daughter's 20th birthday. She was in university, and they were back there for a amount of time. And anyways, Ronnie took his daughter out to buy her some earrings for her birthday. And they go into this shop, and there's this young clerk, 20-something clerk, comes up, wait on him. And, you know, they're saying they're looking for earrings for daughter here. So the clerk takes them over to this display case and is showing the different earrings and they're looking at them. And this other young customer, about the same age of his daughter, and the clerk comes walking in, and she says she's looking for a necklace. So the clerk takes this other young woman over to this display case and said, well, there's gold ones here, and then there's some silver ones here, and then we have some over here with this little man on it. And what became apparent as the conversation, as they could overhear this conversation, was neither of these young women had anything in their mental furniture, any points of connection to understand why there would be a cross with a little man on it. Just wasn't there. Now, they probably heard of Christianity and the church and so on like this, but they had zero knowledge, zilch, of what was there to the point they didn't even know what a little man on a cross was. We're in a, a, in a, in a post-Christendom era when the church and the state supports what we do. However wrong, they may have gotten it, and they got it wrong a lot of times. But you would still, these cultural movers and shakers would still say, now Christianity, that's a good thing. The church, that's a good thing. And all of that can be, and for good reason, seen as a threat. We very well, will, the, our, our comfort zone as followers of Jesus our safe zone is beginning to shrink and to shrink and to shrink. And to be faithful to Jesus will come to a cost. So why do I say this is good news? What does Paul have to say about it? Since our text from Ephesians, you may have a suspicion. I think Paul has something to say about this. So what does he have to say about all this? In 2011, uh, I went to uh, New Zealand in the summer. I went to New Zealand and Australia to teach. Uh, like most places I go in the world, I went there because I had Kenyan friends who say, oh, I can connect you with 
this conference or this Bible school or something, so come on out and teach. So to get there, of course, I fly to Los Angeles, and then I have the relaxing, comfortable, restful 15-hour flight direct to Sydney. Now, on the way back, I flew from New Zealand, which is a little ways east, so it was just a little, you know, 12-and-a-half-hour restful flight to get from, from Auckland to Los Angeles. Now, one of the things that happens, you know when you fly, you get the little screen in front of your, if you got an older plane, you know, up over here, that, where you can see the map of where your little plane goes, and you look at it when you're taxiing, and the little thing keeps jerking around different directions and so on. But you follow this little line up the map to see exactly where you are, how close you're finally getting to Atlanta to get your next flight to wherever, or Charlotte, or wherever you're going. You follow that little airplane. Well, in this case, if you fly out of New Zealand, you start heading out across the South Pacific, making your way northeast up to Atlanta. What happens with um, Qantas, the Australian airline? The way they do their maps is you start and you're looking down at like this, the top of this airplane, you know, the silhouette of an airplane. And then it sort of you know, moves out a little bit, and then moves out a little bit. And what you see then underneath the airplane is the map of whatever's below there. And after you take off and you get up in the air, you look at it and you can see you know, New Zealand behind you. And as it keeps moving out, you can see Australia farther behind that. And a little bit to the north, you get the islands of Indonesia and so on. And it keeps going, it keeps going. Well, that's fine when you're two hours out. When you're five hours, six hours out over the South Pacific, it's the airplane. You reach under the seat and go, didn't they say that video, there's something about there's a life jacket under this seat? Or, you know, you look out the window and go, I want to make sure all those, air, those engines are still really moving and so on. But it goes out farther and farther, and all you get is once in a while there'll be a little name on the map with an arrow. And you can't see anything the arrow points to. It's not even specks. They're like micro specks on the map. And so you keep getting farther and farther, and a few little names appear, but that's about it. Now, to just give you an idea how far out this thing ranges when you're only getting micro specks, we're about two hours out of Los Angeles still, and I watched as this thing moves out and moves out and moves out. At the easternmost edge of the largest sort of perspective on this whole thing, you, they, they show you Houston and New Orleans. And we're still two hours out in the Pacific coming into L.A. That's how far this thing goes out. But when you're over the South Pacific, micro specks. That's a 38,000-foot view on where you're at. I'm going to need a whole lot more in the life reserve as this thing goes down. Now, what's this have to do with Paul? If you could take Paul, time that this letter gets written, and you could say, what's the 38,000-foot view of Christianity from right over top of Ephesus? You know, you look over top of Ephesus, and there's a microspec right underneath you. And it goes out a little bit. And you, oh, there's another microspec in Colossae. And, you know, a little one down here. And you go back a little bit farther, get a few more, but there's still microspecs. You get to Rome... There's maybe enough microspecs as there was enough little groups there that you maybe have a smallish speck. I don't know. Judea's got one. But eventually you map out to where you're northern Europe to the western Mediterranean over towards India and down into North Africa and Ethiopia. And all you can see at the time he writes this letter are some microspecs. Paul can't see what's coming 50 years down the road when a letter will be written from a Roman governor not too far from here saying, you know what, these Christians have gotten to be so many, they've shut down the, 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 the uh, 
metal industry because people, no one wants idols anymore. Paul can't see 50 years from where he's at or 100 years or 1,000 years until this thing comes that we're now losing called Christendom. When you look at the 38,000 view, it's just the micro specs. So what Paul got to say? Does he have anything to say to people who are losing their cultural cachet and maybe under threat? You know, Paul writes at this point with the micro specs out there, and he's in prison. And he's in prison precisely for being a follower of Jesus. Maybe he's got one or two things to say to us that may help us plot a way forward to think, what's it mean to be faithful for us, given our situation, given the cultural meltdown around us? Now, what I want to do is I want to work, we're going to get to the text that was read this morning. We're really going to work through Ephesians 1 to 3. And I didn't give that as my whole text because these poor people that Dr. Freymeyer recruits to read scripture for him <clears throat> under threat of grades and other such things would still be up here reading. So I didn't want to do that to you all. Thank you for what you did. But I want to walk us through, if you will, a 38,000 foot view of what Paul says and how Paul goes about speaking to a group of people who exist as a micro-spec in the world at that time. Now, let me lay this out in just four statements, and we're going to work our way up to the passage of text that was read to us. First of all, Paul starts with who God is and what God has done. And if you want to extrapolate that for each time, I'm going to read a similar statement. Who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do. Think it all out that way, because I don't want to keep repeating it, because... Dr. Farmer will get mad at me if I keep going. If you look at 1, 3 to 14, before he gets to instructions, before he gets to exhortations, before he takes up an offering, before he gets anywhere, Paul begins writing to this small group of Gentile followers of Jesus, the one they are now calling their Lord. He writes to them and he begins with this blessing to God for who God is. And what God has done is doing and will do. Verse 3, for chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it works all the way down through verse 14 that Paul starts with a focus on who God is and what it is that God has done. It's the reality that determines all other realities. That's the place he begins, and everything else he's going to say to these people is going to be framed within that reality. That's where it starts. That's where it takes roots. That's where it builds. Now, it's going to become important here as we move along to just see how significant this is because in each of the next few steps, Paul's going to continue in this same vein by building on who God is and what God has done. Let me give you an example of how that shapes what he's doing. If you take the first three chapters, which we're looking at this afternoon, these are all in, uh, not instructions so much as, again, blessings and thanksgiving, a discussion of who God is again and who God is and what God has done. When you get to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Now I, a prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he's going to go on and give them practical instructions. But that's what it means by walking in a manner worthy, is all these things are going to lay out, and they're tied to what he's just said. You know, your IBS, therefore, okay? 
Chapters 1 to 3 is your calling, all described. Because he's going to take this and talk about who God is and what God is doing and how that involves you. This is your calling. Now, the rest of this stuff is going to be instructions for what it looks like to live into that. Now, when he gets to the end of chapter 6, I want to build upon these connections between the first part of the letter and the second part of the letter. When he gets to chapter 6, this well-known patch of text from verse 10 to 20 about spiritual warfare, so on and so on like this, one of the things we really like to talk about and so on. When he gets there, he says, our struggle is not with what? With flesh and blood. Ever look around the way people talk in the church? Christians? Lovers of Jesus? About the way they talk about our politics? Does it start with who God is? And what God has done and is doing as will do? Or does it start with flesh and blood? Paul starts with God, and he can say when he gets to the end and pulls this whole letter together, don't struggle with flesh and blood because that's not where the battle lies. And he knows that because he starts with God. Now, secondly, in chapter 1 here, starting in verse 15, you notice that he goes on to pray. Interesting. Just given all these instructions, or all these instructions, all this thanksgiving to God, and blessing to God and reflection on who God is and what God has done and so on. And immediately what he does is he turns to pray. Paul prays in light of who God is and what God has done. Prayer and what God has done are not siloed. As if, well, theology is one thing and prayer is something else. It's who God is and what God has done that shapes how God pray, or Paul prays and who he prays for. It's because he's begun with God, he can pray that way. Now, if you'll notice that Paul prays at pretty much a 38,000-foot level, but when he prays for these people, effectively what he's doing there in chapter 1 is saying, you know, all this stuff that God has done in Jesus Christ, what I'm praying for is this stuff will become a reality in your experience. It's first things that shape how he prays because he started with who God is and what God has done. That shapes the whole thing and informs how he prays. I also think it's significant that this is the first thing that runs after this recounting after what God has done. Paul knows if this is God's doing and God's business and we're just caught up in it, first thing that means is we better pray because we're dependent upon God. This is not our business. This is God's business, and God just asks us to take part. Now, if that's true, it will grip us in prayer because it's, it's not us. It's something far bigger than that. If we start with ourselves and we start with flesh and blood, who needs to pray? These are God's purposes. This is where God's headed. Now, let's pray we can get caught up in becoming who God wants us to be, who God purposed us to be, created us for that, and let that take shape among us. So Paul starts with who God is and what God has done, and now Paul prays in light of who God is and what God has done. And if you go to chapter 2 and you take the whole thing, Paul recognizes that what God has done and is doing involves at its core, at its heart, a people called to be joined to Jesus Christ. Church isn't something 
extra, you know, kind of along the side or an option when we finally get to it or whatever. As if church is a bunch of autonomous individual Christian units that happen to bump into each other on Sunday. Who we are and all our crazy different manifestations and so on, who we are lies at the heart of God's purposes, of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Again, if you read through chapter 2, the first part talking about how God has taken Jews and Gentiles, dead in their sins and trespasses, walking in, in this particularly horrid manner and in obedience to spirits opposed to God. But verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, which he loved us, made us, Jew and Gentile, alive together with Christ, raised us with Christ, seated with Christ, uh, with Christ at God's right hand. All these sorts of statements. And then he goes to the second half of the chapter. And he says, well, what's that mean for you non-Jews, for you Gentiles? And that's us, the nations. Is that, you know what? You used to be far off, separated from Israel, separated from the promises of God, all of this, but God has now brought you near so that we are part of one people of God. And if you work your way down to the end of the chapter, he says what we're formed into is a holy temple, the place where God dwells. It's not in a building someplace anymore where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. That's what Paul's talking about here. The church has always been at the heart of what God is doing. Go through and read that about God's purposes that you'll find stated in chapter 2 have to do with making this mystery, Paul's going to cry, what God is doing in Christ known to principalities and powers and to the world. It will happen through the church. I'm going to come up in chapter 3 again. So Paul begins with who God is and what God has done and is doing and will do. He prays because of who God is and what God is doing. And he sees at the heart of what God is doing a people. Church isn't something we just kick around and treat like, well, you know, I didn't like the colors they painted the wall. I think I'll go down here next week. I, I say that realizing there's probably a lot of pain in this room because we got pastors. I've been through some of that nonsense. Like, I can't believe the toilet didn't work on Easter Sunday. I can't go back to that church. We get to Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul takes this turn. If we've narrowed God's purposes for which God prays will be, take place among them to chapter 2 and talking about a people who are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, this is nitty-gritty stuff. This doesn't happen a part of relationships. This is not just something theoretical. Read the stuff Paul talks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6, about how we speak the truth to one another, how we love one another. That's how we embody this stuff. That's at the heart of God's purposes, that kind of hard work that it takes to really form a people. On chapter 3, he's going to frame his understanding of himself and his call in light of who God is and what God has done. 3.1, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake. And then he says, surely you've heard about God's call in my life, up to what we, we was read for us earlier. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given through the working of his power. You notice he started with God here to talk about his own understanding of his call and who he is. 
Although I am less than the least of all God's people. That's pretty low. That's pretty micro-spec. When you're less than the least. I'm less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Talked about this in chapel before, I find, with seminary students over the years, that the two things that tend to get in the way of the ministry is we either think too highly of ourselves or, more commonly, we think too little of ourselves. Paul always seems to be able to find that balance. You know, I'm the least of the leastest, the leastesterest of all of God's people. But God himself, in other words, he doesn't think too highly of himself. But God himself has called me and given this grace to me. So Paul has the boldness to step out into what God has done and is doing and will do because of the greatness of the God whom he serves. It's all framed from the start, from that very premise of who God is, what God has done, and so on. When I was in New Zealand, uh, I had dinner one night. One of our friends, a guy named Steve Mina, uh, arranged this dinner, Steve and Mary, his wife, uh, with a number of pastors and a couple lecturers in a theological college in the city where they lived. And we're, we're talking over time, and the, the conversation goes on and on. They're talking about just how difficult it is because the culture around them just seems to not just ignore them. In some cases, the most, the easiest cases, it just ignores the church. But at other times, dealing with the kind of opposition that's coming to anything they would try and say and do to, to who they are. And I kept talking with him, and I said, I think you're, I think you're losing confidence in the gospel. You know, going, oh, no, 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 no. And we kept talking, I said, think you're losing confidence in the gospel. Oh, no, 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 no. Finally, they said, you know, I think we're losing confidence in the gospel. I said, well, tell me what the gospel is. How do you preach the gospel? Well, uh, we're born in sin. Jesus died. And if we confess our sin, you, you know the routine. And I said, okay, you've got a cross, but do you have a resurrection? If you don't have a cross, if you don't have a resurrection, cross is not good news. We need to find some kind of symbol. Cross works really well. Hard to find a symbol of an empty tomb that works as well as what's hanging up there. But we've got to be an empty tomb people. So your gospel has to have a Jesus who's raised and who sits at God's right hand and who sends the Holy Spirit or you have no hope. And mission is, is really, really, really impossible. Now, the good news is Christ's alive. Christendom's dead, and that can present some problems. But the issue is, if you don't have the first good news that Christ is alive, the second piece really is bad news. The second thing can become good news because we learned under Christendom to be lazy and just depend on trite things. And who needs to pray? I mean, you know, things are pretty good, right? And we got lazy, and we got flabby, and we lost the edge that a people who served a resurrected and throne Jesus Christ should have. But if we don't have the good news that Christ is raised, the second one becomes bad news. It's only good news, and anything else we could talk about is only good news if we have a living, resurrected Savior, and that's what we have.
Let's begin with God. Take, take Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and say, you know, this good post-resurrection season we're in. Marinate for a while. Just go back and see what Paul blesses God for and gives thanks for. And how he prays that. And ask God to give you insight. May this be something that I live into and, and we live into that God, because it's going to depend upon God, God makes something that actually becomes reality among us. And God uses us to make it reality among those people God has entrusted to our leadership. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good, more good than we could imagine or articulate. You have done incredible great things and maybe the greatest thing among all the things we could say of who you are is that you love us, are incredibly patient with us. May we be a people in, in one step to the next step to the next step. You lead to, to learn how it is we can lean in and, and experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit among us, that the good news of Jesus Christ can be heard as good news in a place where it's largely forgotten, if not reviled. Now may it be so, because you do it. In Jesus' name, amen.